without further ado, can you guys give a round of applause for Matt <clears throat> Smethurst? Oh, I am uh, just so happy to be here. That's not just a throwaway kind of uh, formality line that speakers need to give, but f speaking at fall retreats is one of the most uh, gratifying things that I get to do. And so I am honored to be here. I sat where you sat four consecutive years at James Madison University, 2002 to 2006. So yes, I'm pretty old now. Um, and I love the fact that we have JMU and UVA because this is kind of a visual picture of my whole life because I grew up in Charlottesville <laughs> until the age of 18 and then went to JMU. Uh, and so I have great affection and respect for both, uh, both universities and frankly, a lot of great memories associated with both UVA and JMU. Uh, my wife, Megan, that I mentioned a moment ago, she would love to be here, um, but we are actually in the midst of moving. So Jerry mentioned that we moved to Richmond uh, a, a couple months ago. We've been in a temporary rental and are actually moving into our house uh, basically right now, uh, the next few days. So Megan uh, is, is packing up. Before I get into what we're going to be thinking about um, uh, this evening, I want to just kind of give you a sense for where we're going. So uh, tonight we're going we're gonna to think about um, the first aspect in what I'm calling the shape of the Christian life. Now, I know that might be weird to think about a shape in, 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 in relation to your Christianity, but actually your Christianity, your walking with Jesus Christ for those of you who are followers of his, is meant to have particular contours. It's meant to have a particular shape. And so we're going we're gonna to tonight think about trusting him tomorrow morning, following him, and tomorrow evening proclaiming him. Uh, that, that, that's a brief uh, overview of the shape of your Christian life. And before we start thinking about the, the first aspect, I just want to acknowledge something. I want to, I've done enough of these fall retreats, as I mentioned. I, uh, I was a student at, at four of them, and I've spoken at several of them. And I just am well aware that you're not all here for the same reasons. That some of you, sure, um, have, have been looking forward to this ever since uh, the last fall retreat. Was that two years ago because of the pandemic? You did one last year, kind of a, a scaled-down version uh, from what I understand. But you, you've, been, you've been looking forward to this event ever since you were aware of it. And maybe you come in here with wind in your sails. Maybe you feel like um, things are going really well spiritually. You feel invigorated. You feel excited to be a Christian. Others of you uh, may be struggling. You may be anxious, lonely, um, uncertain of the future, just kind of crippled by fears of, of the unknown, uh, fears of, of, uh, about various what-ifs, and you understand yourself to be a follower of Jesus, but you struggle to translate that into your everyday life. You, you profess to love Him and to believe that He is sovereign, but sometimes you live like a practical atheist. You, you live as if there's no God on the throne of the universe. And then there are still others of you that have come in here thinking that you're good with God, assuming that you are a Christian because perhaps you have walked an aisle or, or um, made some kind of decision at some point in your life, and therefore you just assume, well, well I'm good. That's my ticket to heaven. And uh, maybe you were kind of the superstar in your youth group, and so it's, you're like, of course I'm going to be at a college fall retreat. This is kind of where I belong. But maybe, maybe in the next 24 hours, God loves you so much that he really has one aim, and that is to convince you that you're actually not yet a Christian. That could be one of the most loving things that God does, because there's a sense in which you you need to get lost before you can get saved. You, you need to realize you're lost 
before you can know your need for a Savior. And so I'm going to try tonight to be very clear about what it does and doesn't mean to actually be a Christian, um, despite what you may have heard. And then finally, some of you may be here tonight and, and, un, and know that you are not a Christian. You're, you're, you're not trying to be a Christian. Maybe you were encouraged to come here and, um, you know, and, and you decided to, maybe this is your first kind of Christian event you've ever been at. Maybe there have been some moments already where you're like, what have I gotten myself into? Um, this is going to be a long 24 hours. Well, as a Christian, I want to say to you, I don't believe that the God who made you makes any kind of mistakes. I think that he had you at this retreat as an appointment on his calendar from before he created the world. So no matter where you're coming from, whether you're hitting on all cylinders spiritually or whether you don't even believe God exists, it is not an accident that of all places in the world you could be, you are at this retreat this weekend, and I believe it's because God loves you and wants to do business with you. And the question is, will you do business with him? Will you open yourself afresh to what he might want to accomplish in your heart in these days? So as I'm, even, even as I'm talking, be praying silently that God would soften your heart, that he would give you a tender heart, a receptive heart, a heart that wants to know his will for your life and not your own. All right, having said that, tonight I want to lay the groundwork by, by talking about what it is that makes Christianity unique, because there's a lot of static in the air out there. There's a lot of misconceptions. Some people think, well, all religions are essentially the same. And by some people, I mean most people at UVA and JMU, if pressed, would say, uh, it's like God or some higher reality is at the top of a mountain, and every religion's doing their best to get there, and there may be different paths, but at the end of the day, they're all kind of reaching toward the same summit. So that's the, that's the, the, the common assumption, is that the differences between the various religions are kind of superficial, meaning the differences are on the surface, but that the similarities between the, the religions are really at the heart. They're at the, at the heart, they're the same. The differences are just superficial. But actually, I'm here to suggest it's the complete opposite. I'm here to suggest, no, there, sure, there are some similarities superficially between the various religions, but at their core, at their heart, we're basically talking about two fundamentally opposed ways to thinking about reality and life. And one of those ways is the way of religion, and one of those ways is the way of Christ. Christianity is best summarized in what is called the gospel. That's a word that gets thrown around a lot. Maybe you've heard it, but if you were to squeeze your Bible and a drop were to come out, it would be the gospel. The gospel is the, uh, the, the greatest breaking news headline of all time. The word means good news. So here's one difference between religion, as it's popularly understood, and the gospel. Most religions are in the business of good advice, and there's nothing wrong with good advice, but Christianity, hear me clearly, is not fundamentally about good advice. It is about good news. There is something very different than when someone comes up to you and gives you some advice, and when someone comes in and grabs you and gives you great news, something that has happened apart from you, without you, for your good. And that's what the gospel means. So what is it? What is this breaking news story from the press room of heaven? Well, we're going to think about it tonight in four parts. Um, I'll give them to you as four R's, the ruler, the revolt, the rescue, and your response. The ruler, the revolt, the rescue, and your response. This may be the most important talk 
you've heard in your life. And I'm not saying that because I'm a great speaker. As one, as, as uh, Charles Spurgeon, who was a great preacher in London, once said, he said, others may preach the gospel better, but no one has a better gospel to preach. Others preach the gospel better than me, but no one has a better gospel to preach. And so this may be the most important news you've ever encountered. Number one, the ruler. The very first four words of the Bible set the stage for everything that follows. In the beginning, God. Not in the beginning, you and me, but in the beginning, God. God is the creator, the sustainer, the ruler of everything that exists. And yet there are so many misconceptions out there about him, aren't there? And in fact, I, I, I assume these misconceptions don't only prevail in Charlottesville and Harrisonburg, but that they prevail in some of your hearts right now. Some of you may be inclined to thinking of God as, say, Santa Claus in the sky. You know, just kind of a, a, a sweet, laid-back grandfather who uh, may keep a naughty and nice list, but at the end of the day just wants to kind of make, uh, make children happy. Others of you may think about God as almost like a, uh, a vending machine, a cosmic vending machine, where you just sort of put in the right code and uh, you, 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 you say your prayers, you, you do your good deeds, you go to church, you come to a fall retreat, and out will pop the life that you want. Others of you may tend to think of God as kind of like a drill sergeant, someone who's just up in the sky, cranky all the time, and he's, about, he's, he's in the business of making sure that you don't have too much fun. Still, others of you may, may struggle not to think God is just kind of like a, an absent father, a, a deadbeat dad, and, and maybe that hits close to home because maybe some of you have less than ideal experiences with your own fathers, and that's distorted your view of the heavenly father. But, of course, God is not Santa in the sky. He's not a cosmic fortune cookie or vending machine. He's not a drill sergeant. He's not a deadbeat dad. He is an eternal community of persons, a loving union of three, father, son, and Holy Spirit. By the way, this is one reason why Christians alone can say that love, is, or I should say, prove, because anyone can say it. Christians alone can prove that love is at the heart of the universe. We all want love to be at the heart of the universe, right? But think about it. If God were not Trinity, if God were not a loving community of persons who's always existed, then that means that love is not eternal. It didn't always exist. It only started to exist the moment He created His first human being. So in Islam, for example, love is not at the heart of the universe because love is not eternal. Allah had no one to love until He created His first human being. There's a sense in which Allah is dependent on us in order to be loving because prior to us, there was no one to love. So in Islam, power may be at the heart of the universe, but in Christianity, you have not only power, but love at the very center of reality because God has always existed in a loving relationship with himself, one God in three persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. In the beginning, back to the first page of Genesis, um, God, this triune God, that's just a fancy word for, for this trinity of persons, they made humanity, that's you and me, to image him, to reflect him like little mirrors, and to, to love him, to serve him. We're used to words like that, right? We're supposed to love God and serve God and worship God, and all that's true. But do you know he also made you to enjoy him? to delight in Him, to prize Him, to be satisfied in Him. So we were made by God and for God. By God, 
which means he alone owns us. He has creator rights over us. And we were made for God, which means he alone satisfies us. Human beings were custom designed to find meaning and fulfillment and purpose in life in our creator above all else, above success, above popularity, above recreation, above academic success, above romance, above self. Oh, this God that I'm presenting to you, this God that the Bible presents to you, don't tame him. Don't domesticate him. Don't shrink him to the size of what you are just most inclined to think. God is not just a cosmic projection of you. No, God is holy. God is massive. God is good. God is eternal. God is beautiful, morally beautiful in a way that none of us are. Now, is what I've described about you being made by God and for God and finding your rest and your satisfaction in Him, is that a good description of your days? Is that the story of your life, treasuring Jesus above all else? Well, it certainly isn't the story of mine. And that's because there was an, another development in the plot. And that's number two, the revolt. Here's what went wrong, the revolt. In Genesis chapter 3, something happened which brought ruin to this beautiful picture of God and humans dwelling in harmony and love. Now, I know it's Friday night. I know that you have been listening to lecturers all week and taking notes in your classes, and so you're probably not in the mood to really follow a bunch of subpoints. But here I'm going to give you some subpoints and even a few subpoints under the subpoints. But the purpose, believe it or not, of that complexity is simplicity. So I'm hoping that on the other side of the complexity, it'll end up being more simple and understandable. So bear with me, okay? Let's lean in, let's lock in, and let's try to understand what I mean by the revolt. We're going to look at the reality of sin and the result of sin. So the reality of sin is what it is. The result of sin is what it leads to. So first of all, the reality of sin. When our first parents, Adam and Eve, turned their backs on God and chose to call the shots themselves, they and every one of us was plunged into this ocean of rebellion and sin. Now, this word I've already mentioned three or four times, sin. It's easy to think of it. Some of you, I promise, think of sin like this, as just kind of like a heavenly parking ticket. A very minor infraction, uh, kind of just like maybe outward naughtiness. But when the Bible talks about sin, friends, it is talking about cosmic treason. It is talking about an insurrection against heaven itself. But we can get even more specific. There are a couple things about the reality of sin, the, the nature of sin that we, we've got to understand. First of all, it is more relational than behavioral. Yes, sin involves behaviors, things you do, but it's fundamentally relational. When Adam and Eve rebelled, it was a heart-level betrayal between friends. When we have cheated on our maker. We have desperately sought to build, this is what sin is, building your life around things other than God. Taking a good thing. So don't think that sin is an objectively bad thing so much as it's a good thing gone bad. A good thing that you've given a promotion it didn't deserve, and so it's a good thing that has become an ultimate thing in your heart. So it's, m money is not just money to you, money is actually your functional source of security. It functions like God to you. 
attention from others, relationships with others aren't just a natural thing in life. They've become an ultimate thing in your life. Success academically or wanting to know exactly how everything's going to play out in your life is not just a, a normal desire, curiosity, ambition, but it's actually become what drives you and what makes it difficult at times to sleep. Because you have these idols, these God substitutes, these little God replacements that, again, are not so much bad things as they are good things that you've made into ultimate things. And you've started to build your life around them. So sin is more relational than behavioral. And it's also more vertical than horizontal. Yes, sin has horizontal effects. I mean, just think about the Me Too movement, for example, and, and all the, the, go, the, the good that that, that movement has, has accomplished in exposing horrific instances of, um, of abuse, abuse of, of power, specifically in the area of sexuality. Sin has horrific horizontal effects. Think about what's going on in Afghanistan. We, we could just we think about the abortion industry, racial injustice, just go down the list. Sin has horrible horizontal effects, but do you know that sin is fundamentally not a horizontal issue? It is a vertical issue. King David, after he violated Bathsheba and had her husband killed, he repents to God um, a few months later, that, uh, and, and he writes Psalm 51 out of his repentance. This is a psalm of confession, and he, he prays this to God, Psalm 51, 3 and 4, for I know my transgressions, that's, that's an old-fashioned word for, for sins, and my sin is ever before me, and then he prays, against you, you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight. Now, David is not denying that he had sinned against Bathsheba and Uriah and, frankly, all the people of Israel by modeling wickedness when the king should be modeling righteousness. But David understands that, first and foremost, every sin we commit is against someone else is a sin against the God who made them. And this implies that the biggest problem in your life these days is you. Now, I know that's not culturally appropriate to say. I know that's not easy to hear. But they didn't ask me to come here to give you a pep talk. They asked me to come here to give you a message from another world, from the Bible which crashes into our own experience, our own self-absorption, and it corrects our mistaken thinking. So think about it this way. Think how contrary what I'm saying is to the logic of the world, the logic that is normal and operative on your college campuses. The world says that the biggest problem in your life exists somewhere outside of you. Maybe you had lousy parents. Maybe something horrific was done to you. Maybe you're the victim of various circumstances and you've just been, uh, you've just been dealt a really difficult hand of cards in life. So the, wor and the world says your biggest problem exists outside of you. And then the world comes and says, and actually the solution, the problem is out there, the solution is in here. The solution is to discover yourself, to embrace yourself, to express yourself, to assert yourself. The Bible says the exact opposite. A biblical worldview crashes into our natural ways of thinking and says, no, 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 no. Actually, that's, that's upside down. Yes, there are horrific ways we can be sinned against, but the greatest problem 
in any of our lives does not exist outside of us, it exists in our own hearts. The greatest problem is our self-regard, our self-absorption, our self-centeredness, our self-reliance, i.e. our sin. But here's the good news. The Bible says your biggest problem doesn't exist out there, it exists in here, but guess where the solution exists? The solution, while the world is pointing inside of you, the Bible is pointing outside of you. And the Bible says the solution lies in some other place with some other person, which is actually really good news because you hear the mantras of follow your heart, be true to yourself, you do you, all of this stuff, and it sounds momentarily liberating, especially when there's like a Disney soundtrack behind it. But actually, those messages are crushing for me to be told that I need to be the captain of my own soul and I need to govern my life and I need to follow my heart and I need to discover and embrace and express myself, I can barely reply to emails. Like that is a crushing burden. But the Bible has come to relieve your burden and say, yes, the biggest problem in your life is you, but you don't have to be your own Lord and Savior. But it gets worse because not only are we sinners, and is this more relational than behavioral and more vertical than horizontal? And let me just say this because I think I heard this first at a fall retreat, so I should just pay it forward, okay? Essentially, what I'm, what I'm saying to summarize is that sin is not merely something we do. It's who we now, because of, because of the fall, who we are. So, this is the statement I heard at a fall retreat, and it took me a while to understand exactly what the speaker was saying, but once the, once the penny dropped, it revolutionized the way I understood things. The speaker said, we are not sinners because we sin, we sin because we're sinners. That's deep, right, for a Friday night. You're not a sinner just because you sin. Even more fundamentally, you sin because you are a sinner, a rebel against the God who loves you. Well, that's the reality of sin, but, but I also said that it gets worse because it's not just what sin is, it's what sin leads to. That's the reality, but what about the result? Well, the result is personal separation, in eternal punishment. So personal separation. I, I think of a, a kind of an obscure verse in, in the, the book of Isaiah where the prophet says, Isaiah 59 two, your sins have separated you from your God. They have hidden his face from you so that he will not hear. It's not that God isn't loving. It's that he is so holy that he cannot even, he cannot even look upon evil. So because of our rebellion, we are severed from the source of life. And when you turn from life, the source of life, what else are you going to get but darkness? When you turn from the, 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 the source of love, what else are you going to get but disconnection? When you, when you turn from the source of, of, uh, of, of, love, of, of light, what else are you going to get but darkness and death? Uh, turning away from light leads to darkness. Turning away from love leads to disconnection. Turning away from life leads to death. But then Hebrews 9.27 says, It is appointed for every person to die once and after that to face judgment. I don't relish relaying this news, but I love you too much not to. We are justly, because of our sin, under the wrath of God. And when you hear that term, the wrath of God, do not think that His wrath is like our wrath, because when we experience wrath, so often it is an overreaction. We've flown off the handle. We are sinning. No, God is always in control of His um, emotions, as it were. God's wrath is his holy and settled opposition to evil. Romans 8 says, 
to a believer, if God is for you, who can be against you? But the converse is also true. If you don't know God, if you're not in Christ, if He is against you, who can be for you? So, how good do you have to be to enter heaven? That's, that's the question. Well, what's your answer to it? How good do you have to be to enter heaven? Well, here is the really bad news according to the Bible. You have to be as good as God. Do you have to be considered perfect by God to go to heaven? Yes. Only people that God considers perfect will spend eternity with Him. Needless to say, friends, this is, this is not good news. <laughs> Left to ourselves, we are standing on the precipice of an eternal future under the threat of never-ending just and righteousness, uh, just and righteous punishment apart from God in hell which is not merely the absence of God, it is also the presence of His right and good justice forever and ever. Maybe in the Q&A, y'all can ask me about that, but sometimes we think, oh, heaven is God's place, hell is Satan's place. No, Satan doesn't run hell. He's going to hell one day. Heaven is a divine monument to God's mercy and grace. Hell is a divine monument to God's holiness and justice. In both will glorify different aspects of His character for all of eternity. But, have you ever thought about the fact that your whole eternity hangs on that little word? But, Number three, the rescue. God responds to our revolt against Him with a rescue. I like to think of this as the great invasion. We couldn't get to God, so God comes to us. After centuries of rebellion by God's people, God's own Son, the eternal second person of the Trinity, became an embryo. a baby, a teenager, a man. And the Bible says that for 33 years, Jesus of Nazareth walked the earth and became obedient even to the point of death on a cross. You see, Jesus, he lived the perfect life, this life of, of perfect devotion to His Father in heaven. If you, if you go to a church, maybe you're familiar with the term like a, a prayer of confession. In other words, that's what I quoted David doing in Psalm 51, confessing sin. You know, Jesus prayed a lot of prayers in His life. He never once had to pray a prayer of confession because He never had any sin to confess. He lived, in other words, the life of moral perfection that Adam and Eve failed to live, that Noah failed to live, that Abraham failed to live, that Moses failed to live, that King David failed to live, that Israel as a whole failed to live, and the life that you and I have failed to live. And then he went to the cross and died the death that we deserved to die. The one who made the law came to earth and kept the law, and then died for those who had broken the law. The law maker became the law keeper, and then died for law breakers. Here we have reached the white hot center of the gospel, the Christian faith, the death of Jesus Christ. On the cross, God punished Jesus for the sins of of people just like us. But listen, this isn't all. Forgiven sin alone, if all God was doing on the cross was forgiving sin, that would actually only bring us back to neutral, to kind of the starting line. There's also this idea, what, what theologians have called before the sweet exchange. Are you familiar with this? 2 Corinthians 5.21, the Apostle Paul says, follow me here, God, talking about Christ, 
God made him who knew no sin, that ain't referring to you, that's referring to Jesus, God made him who knew no sin to be sin, to become sin, to be treated as sin for us so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Did you hear it there? Jesus is treated like a sinner so that you can be treated like you're righteous. I am an NBA fan, and in, a, in an ordinary NBA season, there are 82 games, okay? And no team has ever had a perfect season. The, the, the record for, for wins in a season, I think, is like 74. No team has gone 82-0. Now, some fan might sort of quibble with that and say, ah, my team is undefeated. We've had a perfect season. And, I'm, and I go, uh, okay what year are you talking about? What team? They say, oh, uh, my, 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 the Milwaukee Bucks this year. I was like, no, they haven't. Yes, they have. We're zero and zero. Okay, you're missing the point. Uh, being zero and zero, it's true that you're undefeated, but you can't say you've had a perfect season because you, ha- you, haven't, you haven't won all your games. Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden it's as if they had a moral record of O and O. Yeah, they were morally undefeated. They hadn't yet sinned, but they also hadn't lived a whole life of righteousness before God. And when they rebelled against God and turned their back on Him, their moral record and ours as well plummeted to O and 82. You are born as a sinner by nature and by choice, and you inherit a moral record of O and 82 before a holy God. You are spiritually bankrupt. But in the middle of history, one man came and lived a life where he went 82 and 0. And on the cross, if all he was doing was paying for our losses, if all he was doing was taking care of our sin, if all he was up to was forgiveness, what would your moral record be? Zero and zero. He would take your 82 losses, but you'd be right back to where Adam and Eve were in the garden. But that's not the only thing that happened. On the cross, he paid for your 82 losses, and he credited you his 82 victories. So you went from 0 and 82 to 82 and 0 in the eyes of a holy God. That is the essence of what I'm talking about, which is that on the cross, God treated Jesus as if he had lived our sinful life so that he could treat believers as if we had lived his righteous life. And I'll get practical. You know what this means? This means that there is more, as one old Puritan put it, there is more mercy in Christ than sin in you. You need to sit with that. You need to internalize that. There is more mercy in Christ than there is sin in you. I don't care how badly you've messed up. Some of you have done things that if they were to be broadcast on these two screens right now for everyone to see, you would literally pass out in shame. There is more mercy for you. There is more mercy in Christ than sin in you. Some of you have a a bad sexual history. You've done things you, you know you, you shouldn't. There is more mercy in Christ than sin in you. Some of you have harbored terrible thoughts about others before. You've looked down on others, perhaps because of their skin color or, or because of um, the fact that they're just not, they don't remind you of yourself. If you repent and turn to Christ, there is more mercy in Christ than sin in you. Some of you don't know how you're going to make it for 24 hours, just a dinky little weekend retreat without looking at porn. There is more mercy in Christ than sin in you. 
Some of you feel pretty clean morally. You, you know you're a sinner, of course, no one's perfect, but again, maybe you were the all-star of your youth group, maybe you're an emerging leader and crew, maybe you're just a good person, you feel. But without Christ, you're just as lost as anyone in here or out there. And there is more mercy in him than sin in you. Do you realize that we are not tonight discussing normal religion? Remember I said at the beginning, religion or, or moralism is all about our attempt, man's attempt to reach God. The gospel is about God's success in reaching man. Moralism is about your performance for God. The gospel is about Christ's performance for you. Moralism says, I obey, therefore God has to bless me. The gospel says, no, God blesses me, Therefore, I want to obey. Or to put it a different way, moralism says, I give God a good record, and, and so he has to bless me. The gospel says, God gives me Christ's record. He, he gives me Christ's record, and so I want to bless him. All other religions, I have this, this image in my mind, like all other religions essentially are in the business of giving swimming lessons to drowning people. In fact, it's a little worse than that. According to the Bible, they're drowned people. They're not flailing in the water. They're actually at the bottom of the ocean, dead. But for the sake of the illustration, we'll just say they're drowning. And it's almost like we're all kind of drowning in our brokenness and our sin. And imagine this, this boat comes along, and inside the boat you have, uh, you know, uh, Siddhartha Gautama, Buddha. You have um, the prophet Muhammad. You have Joseph Smith representing Mormonism. You have all these religious leaders, and you even have maybe some modern self-help gurus, right? And... All of them are standing in the boat shouting at this, this mass of humanity drowning in the ocean. And what are they shouting? They're giving them swimming techniques. Now, remember I said that religions, there are some differences between the religions. I admit that. So, yes, you know, Buddha's going to be given one technique and uh, Joseph Smith another and Muhammad another and, you know, uh, Oprah Winfrey, another, or whomever it is, just some, uh, you know, some uh, modern, modern person, you know, Taylor Swift. I love Taylor Swift. We listened to her on the way here, but even her, you know, all of these, all of these people, they, they're going to be, you know, giving some kind of technique. I mean, the Taylor Swift and the Oprah Winfrey's of the world, they're going to be giving the you know, Muhammad's going to be like, you need to follow the five pillars of Islam. You need to make a pilgrimage to Mecca. But all the self-help gurus today are just going to be saying, follow your heart, you know? Discover yourself. You do you. Different techniques, but all equally worthless. Religion is swimming lessons for drowning people. But there's one person in the boat, only one, who dives in who submerges himself right down to the bottom and who resurrects corpses. He's the only Savior in the boat, and his name is Jesus Christ. So sin is all about our attempts, our pathetic attempts to take God's place on the throne. But salvation is all about God's attempt and even God's success in taking our place on the cross. But sometimes our gospel presentations leave Jesus there hanging on the cross. But that's not all. He, he rose again three days later. It was like God 
on the Easter Sunday, what God was publicly signing the public claims of Jesus, giving heaven's stamp of approval, heaven's affirmation that the sacrifice of the cross had been accepted and that the door to heaven had been flung open once again. In other words, if Good Friday, Jesus dying on the cross is like a, the check of redemption being signed, Easter Sunday is that check clearing. The ruler, the revolt, the rescue, and fourth and finally, your response. So what are you going to do? I, I just moved to Richmond, Virginia to plant a church, as Jerry mentioned, and I'm getting used to tolls because there's a lot of tolls in the area. And if you have the experience with a, with a toll, a pay toll, uh, you know that that's not exactly a relationally meaningful experience. It's not meant to be. It's a business transaction with the person in the booth. You pay the money, they raise the bar. You do your part, they do theirs. And some of you came in here tonight assuming that getting saved, becoming a Christian, is sort of like that. That it's a, a, a kind of transaction where if you get baptized or if you sign a card or walk an aisle or raise a hand or pray a prayer or throw a pine cone into a fire at a summer camp, then God will raise the bar and let you in. And he'll hand you a ticket, a little golden ticket that you can just put in your wallet and sit on for the rest of your life, forget about, and then whip out, ta-da, the moment you die. Becoming a Christian is not like passing through a highway toll. It is, it is a far more intensely personal union. It's more like getting married. It, it, becoming a Christian is you throwing yourself on Jesus for mercy and him catching you and never letting go. So, what the most important question, and I don't care if you were the youth group all-star or if you are a a vowed atheist, the most important question you might, you could possibly ask is, what must I do to be made right with God? What must I do to be saved? And I'll just briefly end by saying, you've got to turn. So, so this, is, this is doing an about face, a, a moral 180, where, where you change your mind and you repent. Uh, you, you turn away from your sin, which is just saying no to sin and yes to Jesus. So you turn, you're, you're, you're following your heart, right? You're following your heart, you're following the world, and then you repent, you turn away because you've heard Jesus say, follow me. The world says, follow your heart. Jesus says, follow me. The world says, discover yourself. Jesus says, deny yourself. The world says, believe in yourself. Jesus says, believe in me. So you turn away from the whispers of the world. You repent and you turn to Christ. So you turn and you trust. It's two sides of the same coin. You turn and you trust. As it, and what that means is simply you put your faith in Jesus, your reliance on him. So it's all about, it's, what's important is not the strength of your faith. What Jesus says all you need is mustard seed-sized faith. What's important is not the strength of, strength of your faith, it's the object of your faith. So if I come right here, I size this baby up, I think, okay, can this hold me up? Is this an object that can hold my weight? And I, I lean on it, and sure enough, yeah, yeah, this, what was impressive there was not the strength of my faith, it was the object of my faith. If I come to this thing, I'm going to make a fool of myself if I try to lean on this because I'll wipe out and you'll have a funny story from fall retreat, but I'll, I might be in the hospital because I'm almost 38 and I probably would get really hurt. Well, what's the difference? The difference isn't me. The difference is the two objects. Becoming a Christian is leaning your weight on an object that won't give way. It is leaning your weight on Jesus. And this should encourage you if, you're, if you are a Christian, but you're struggling in your faith. God's love for you doesn't rise and fall with how strong your faith is. God's love for you is rooted in the fact that you're leaning 
on an immovable Christ. It's not the strength of your faith. It's the strength of your Savior that makes the decisive difference. And I could even add one more and just say, so you turn, you trust, and you treasure. Now, the reason I add this is not just because I'm a Baptist preacher and I feel like I need three T's. There is a sense in which it's only two things. It's turning and trusting, repenting and believing. But I add treasuring because that's what it means to trust. And I think a lot of us have grown up in churches and youth groups where we've come to believe that all we must do is accept Jesus, kind of the way I accept a root canal. No, that's not what it means to accept Jesus. To accept Jesus as your Lord and Savior means to embrace him as your treasure, the most valuable thing in the universe. So the most important question is not, did you once upon a time do something spiritual? (laughs) Did you once upon a time have a good season of walking with God? Did you once upon a time pray a prayer? or get baptized. The most important question is, are you tonight, October 1st, 2021, are you right now relying on, leaning on Jesus alone? So if you forget everything else I say tonight, if you forget everything else you ever hear from a Christian, please don't forget this. Christianity is about resting in what Jesus has accomplished for you not in what you must accomplish for him. He's worthy of your trust and your allegiance in your life. Let's pray. Oh God, I pray that for those in here who don't yet know you personally, they may know about you, Lord, but they don't know you I pray that they would realize for the first time tonight that they need to turn and trust and treasure you. And we thank you that it's a free gift that anyone can embrace and in a moment go from 0 and 82 to 82 and 0 in the eyes of a holy God. Lord, if there's anyone here tonight who needs to do business with you, who needs to get right with you, I pray they wouldn't go to sleep tonight until they've talked to a student leader or a staff person and asked, what must I do to be right with God? I pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. I talked a little longer than I wanted to, um, so I think we only have about five, six minutes for Q&A, but I'll do my best to answer a few of your questions. Have folks texted any yet? Yes. Oh, wow. Good job. To start off, we kind of have like a two-part question. Um, If Jesus died on the cross to make us righteous and eliminate our sin, then why do people still go to hell? Why doesn't it eliminate all sin for everyone? That's a great question. Um, The most honest answer is I don't know uh, why God chose to do it the way he did. But I do know why... I do know the way he chose to do it. So in other words, um, there are, and, and I'm happy this question came up because I think that this doctrine in particular, the doctrine of universalism, the idea that one day hell will be empty, eventually everyone will be saved, it's one of these things that at first glance, it sounds great. It sounds like, well, oh, that, that's really the, the evidence of, of, a, of a loving God. But if you sit with the doctrine, you realize how many other attributes of God it compromises and undercuts. Remember I was even mentioning earlier, just kind of off the cuff, about how God will forever be glorified in his justice and holiness and wrath because of the existence of hell. Hell is not a divine overreaction. Hell is God 
meeting out a punishment which fits a crime, and it brings glory to him. And so we dare not, we shouldn't reduce God to only one attribute. And we often do that when it comes to love, and we even do it with our own definition of love. So a lot of us, we say God is love, but really what we mean is love is God. We've made an idol out of our definition of love. So think about it this way. I'll, I'll just end with this, because the question is good, but it actually, re- it actually relates to a lot of different beliefs which are becoming more common today. So, so I'll, just, I'll just make one, one point, and that is a God who never disagrees with you, who never disturbs you, who never confuses you, is probably not really something transcendent. It's probably not really God. It's probably just a reflection of yourself. Does that make sense? Because by definition, there are things, if God is really God, there are things that fit into his mind that won't fit into my own. And so if I understand everything about God, if nothing about God confuses me or disturbs me or bothers me, then maybe my, my understanding of God is just a projected version of myself. And so when God does disturb us, that's a reminder that he's God and we are not. And one last thing I want to say on this, God is not stingy with his mercy. If Jesus, Martin Luther once said that if the world had treated me the way it has treated God, I would smash the wretched thing to pieces. One of the reasons we struggle with questions like this is because we have a very low view of God and a very high view of ourselves. But to the degree we have a high view of God and a low view of ourselves, not low in the sense of, I mean, of course, we are, we are royal uh, people. We are are image bearers of God, but we are, uh, but sin, as I was saying, is cosmic treason. It's insurrection. To the degree, though, that that distinction gets lost, we're not going to understand things like hell. But if we understand how serious sin is, then we look at the cross and we think, oh my goodness, you saved the thief on the cross? You didn't have to do that. That was infinite mercy. Oh my goodness, you keep reading? You saved the Roman guard, the Roman centurion? You have to start at some point questioning the sanity of this deity who is saving all of these rebels. And do you know what God used to tell Abraham how many spiritual descendants he would have? God didn't say, Abraham, come out here. Look at this pile of pebbles. No, he said, look at stars and sand. So shall your offspring be. Revelation 7, 9 John gives us a glimpse of, of the future, and we look at the, the, the crowd assembled in heaven around the throne, and John says, it is a crowd that no one can count. Who are we to say that God is stingy with his mercy and needs to have saved more than he's chosen to? The question we struggle with is, how can a loving God send anyone to hell? But the question the Bible struggles with is, how can a holy God receive anyone into heaven. And he has received a multitude beyond number. Sorry, I probably used up all my time. We have like <laughs> one minute. Yeah. But, um, I'll give a lightning round. I'll give a quick, quick answer. What are some applicable ways we can turn from our sin? Well, um, the most important thing to do is to not do it alone. So we're going to think about this a little bit tomorrow, but takes a, uh, you know, it's a, it, they say it takes a village to raise a child. Well, it takes a church to raise a Christian. If you, if you try to live the Christian life by yourself, you will sputter out and won't make it. Take my word for it. I was in your seat 15 years ago, and I have seen so many of my friends from college, including student leaders and worship leaders and MCs, make shipwreck of their faith and forsake their first love and walk away from Jesus. 
So, and one of the common denominators is that a lot of these people, their function, their relationship with God was too dependent on a college ministry which was custom designed for them. College ministries are a great gift, but one day, but crew doesn't want 28-year-olds hanging around. That's sketchy. <laughs> one day, they're going to kick you out. <laughs> You're on like your fourth victory lap. Um, one, day one day, crew's going to kick you out, and if you haven't gotten used to orbiting your life around a local church, in other words, if you haven't gotten used to living as an adult Christian, you're not going to last. So how do you repent? You do it in the context of a covenant community, elders, pastors who know you and will hold you accountable, fellow church members who know you and will hold you accountable, and we are all doing this together as we stumble our way to glory. That is all the questions we have time for, but thank you so much, Matt, for speaking with us this weekend. Yeah. Thanks for tuning in and listening. If you want to find out more information on what you heard, you can check out our website at jmucrew.com.